You are listening to a Sunday morning message from River Corner Church. River Corner Church is a growing church community of everyday people who gather to worship God, follow Jesus, and journey through life together. You are invited to gather with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about something you heard in this message, or if you want to learn more about our growing church community, visit us online at rivercornerchurch.com. As you turn in your Bibles to Mark 2, and I might as well make sure that I'm open to it. Usually when I speak, I get so wrapped up in all the other stuff that I forget to like note where it is. And then I'm flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping, <laughs> always. So I was like, this morning, because I'm not pastoring in a more formal sense, I got a little more time where that's that pertains. And so I, I'm like, mark your spot. I'm thinking in my kitchen, mark your spot, mark your spot. So we're in Mark 2 this morning. Jeff asked me to share from there. So as we do, um, I want to start out just kind of asking us if we've been in the church for quite some time. A lot of us, I think, would have grown up in the church in some capacity in some way. You ever remember, you ever have this encounter, see if this is relatable. Sunday morning, church is packed, and someone walks in late. And have you ever had that? Maybe you're the one that walked in late. Hopefully we're on this side of it. If you're the one that walked in late, and the heads turn, and all eyes come on you as you try to find the one spot. And it's inevitably the only place that you can go when you're late is all the way to the front. Everybody has to see that you're late, right? And then you have the people that will turn and look. Now, I recognize that there's some human nature is just curious. And so when there's a scuffle and there's a little you know noise or something that's different than the than the process that we're sitting that we're participating in all together at the moment curiosity just and we inevitably we look right i try my best not to do that because in my world the world that i built in my head about this is that it's eyes of judgment on us for being late And I think I see some smiles related to this because there's a little bit of that that we all recognize and have probably felt from time to time. That the eyes that turn to us are eyes of judgment. And I want to say that not in too heavy a term, but just in a relatable way. that, That there's this, you realize you're late for church, right? Like you couldn't prioritize God somehow or enough or whatever. And, and I find that, that that might be a little human nature. And I think in terms of Jesus might have looked at it differently. And he might say, he might, instead of looking at, is someone late? Did they even come? Right? The grace versus the the ire, I'll call it, instead of not trying to be so he- at all heavy-handed with us today. Um, but can you relate to that? Are you with me on that for just a moment? 
Relevant Magazine had an article by Michael Hidalgo back in 2015. And his article was about judgment in the church. It highlights a lady who made a mistake in her life and was reprimanded for it by her church. And in 10 years, at this time, in 10 years, she had not set foot in the church. Not that church, the church, any church at all. I've heard, I, don't, I, had, I did not grow up here. I'm from New England. Um, and uh, so when I came, I would hear stories from other pastors, not always, but periodically. In my world, our world in the vineyard at the time, the front of the church was a, a place of ministry. So when I just came and was leading our vineyard church at the time, and we would offer and invite people to come forward if they wanted some prayer. You could feel an awkward tension and resistance. And what I came to find out was, in, in this area largely, the, the front doesn't always feel safe. Because at times, decades and decades and decades ago, there were multiple stories of people that, that had made a mistake, like this lady in this article, and would be brought to the front of the church and reprimanded publicly, thinking it was in line with the instructions in the New Testament, which are actually for leaders, not for the laity. But they would be publicly disciplined and reprimanded in front of the congregation. And the front becomes unsafe. And those people, like this lady here who made a mistake, would not just leave that church. They would leave the faith. And they would... Then this has generational impact. The one that left, left the church, left the faith because of a wounding like that, would then, might or might not, would have grown up knowing Jesus, but then not continuing in the faith in any regard because of that, the next generation grows up not just not going to church, not knowing Jesus, and having no regard for him and for his people. And they grow up outside of the family of God. And there's then you'd have the story, then you'd hear the conversations, well, my... My mother used to go to such and such church up the street or my grandmother or my grandfather used to go and there's this generational impact that would happen quickly when you think about how fast that can happen over judgment. So not to be, I, I want to share one other thing with you that Barna did a study on, the, on favorable and unfavorable views of the church and Christians. Now, this is 2007. And in the study, they presented young people with 20 il um, illustrations, 20 words or pictures depicting illustrations of the church. Excuse me, 10 were favorable and 10 were unfavorable. And they were supposed to prioritize their 20 altogether. For non-Christians, 
nine out of the first 12 that they chose. There's only 10 unfavorable and 10 favorable. Nine out of the first 12 that they chose were negative perceptions of the church. 87% in that study felt that the church was judgmental. 85% felt that the church in general was hypocritical. And 75% felt that the church was too involved in politics. And then when the study was carried out, same thing, by church-going young people, they found that 50% of church-going young folks at that time, in 2007, felt that the church was even too judgmental. Now, this was 2007. Do we think that perception has gotten any better? Not likely. And I'm not trying to bring such a heavy thing. I was just trying to give an introduction, illustri- illustration, things that, we could, that you can connect with mentally. And now, we're, like, now that we're together on it, hopefully, I'm not trying to, I don't want to come here today to make you feel bad or make you feel bad about yourself. I just want to highlight what I've seen in the passage we're going to look at today, what I see out of the words of Jesus. And here's the big takeaway. The one, I'd say the one main idea that we're going to look at is in humility, see the best in other people. Because even the most unlikely people can become like Jesus. Even the most unlikely people can be transformed by Jesus. They won't be transformed by our rules or our doctrines or our regulations. But even the most unlikely people can be transformed and become like Jesus by him. So let's read. Let's first pray. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this time and this moment on a beautiful Sunday morning. We pray that, that as this place is filled with your presence, that the word of God that I speak would be from your heart and would be filled with your presence and your transforming power. Shed light on our hearts that we could be made more like you. We pray in our Savior Jesus' name. Amen. So, Mark 2, 13 to 17, it says this. When he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there, sorry, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so, this is taking place in Capernaum, 
which was Jesus' hometown or his home base. While he was from Nazareth, originally, born in Nazareth, right, in Bethlehem, he came, I believe he came back and then he came around and back and forth a little bit. But where, as he started his ministry years, Capernaum was his home or his home base, you could call it. Now, Capernaum rests, I apologize for not having, uh, this would be a great illustration point, just give you some geographic context. Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, and if you're looking at the map, it's in the somewhere in the northwest corner, right on the water, pretty much. It's, um, and across the sea is also places where the gathering demoniac was and so forth. So this is a very active place in the scriptures, but it was a smaller town. It wasn't a large metropolis that in their day. It was a smaller town. It was a fishing town. And Jesus called a number of his disciples from right here. So there, there's debate on whether this happened, this meal happened in Jesus' home or Matthew's home. But it's very close and, and pretty much agreed that it was Jesus' hometown. So this could have been Matthew's house by the language that we read. So if you read that right now, I might read it as this was Jesus' house, and you might read it as somebody else's or maybe Matthew's house. This is all kind of fun, just little like reading into stuff and trying to understand the context in which it was written and what's going on. But what you have is, right before this, you have a number of things happening. You have the story of the lame man being let down through the roof Right by his four friends, remember that story? They let him. They destroy the roof because there's no room to get into this house, and they let him down. This is mere verses earlier in Mark, right here. You know whose house that was? This would blow my mind. I'm like, I grew up in the church, and I never heard this. But if we look at the text for what it is, it's. Very possible. It was Jesus' house. Like, when you think, like, would you ever, if you knew it was Jesus and you know who Jesus is, would you ever rip apart his roof? Would you take a sawzall and cut a, cut a hole in the wall where there was no door to, like, hand your friend through the sidewall of, of Jesus' house? Like, no. It's audacious and kind of cool Beautiful at the same time, isn't it? To find to figure it's Jesus' house. And so whether there's debate and, and stuff like that is fine. But here, Jesus is still at the beginning of his ministry. He's only called a few people. Even when you see the parallel passage in Luke 5, he's only called a handful of his disciples yet. Not all 12 were established and in the fold, so to speak. But it does say that he was doing some teaching and that a few had been called and many people were following him. Many people were following him around and listening to his teachings. And so in the midst of this, one day he's out with, he's got a few, he's got um, Peter and Andrew, 
James and John. He's got at least four. And all of a sudden, he's in his hometown, and he, he's walking by. This was a prime location, by the way, for tax collectors. Prime location for tax collectors to be. And so Matthew's here. Matthew's a tax collector. Tax collectors are outcasts. If you've been around the church for a while, you, you have heard some of this. But tax collectors were outcasts because they were Jews who were seen, and I think rightly so, as having sold out their fellow um, Israelites to the Romans for money. Because they made a deal... They would make a deal. It's like if you got a license to be a tax collector and then you agree, like, what do you want, Rome? Rome wants 5%. Okay, great. But I come and charge you eight. I only got to give Rome five. I get 3% on your back. And I'm giving it. I'm in league with our overlords, our enemy. There are, you know, they're politically just an enemy, let's say, and they're also not Jewish, right? So they're Gentiles, they're unclean, they're not the chosen people of God. But they're lording all this oppression over us. And so tax collectors are outcasts from their own people. And Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. Now, you have the chosen going on. Matthew is one of the primary characters in there. I think that guy does an amazing job. And it's a really interesting take to make him autistic. It's interesting. Clearly, it's not in the Bible, but it's not anti-biblical. It's not unbiblical. But it's just an interesting thing. So you see how Matthew, the text doesn't say whether or not Matthew took a little while. This text basically says Matthew went immediately. I don't think it uses the word immediately in his calling, but he basically didn't wait. He didn't sit there and hem and haul over it for a few days. He just went and followed Jesus. And so in that day, if a rabbi, if you wanted to be as a young person, Matthew was already beyond this point in age, and he had already then gotten into his, excuse me, his established career. But when, he, when you were younger, maybe 12 years old, you would say, 12, 15 years old, you would kind of find a teacher, and you would hang around the teacher with the teacher's disciples, and you would sit quietly, and then at one point you would approach the teacher and he'd ask you as a young boy all kinds of questions to see how well had you memorized the Old Testament. Not a passage, not a book, but the whole Torah. At least the first five books How well had you memorized the law? And if it was sufficient, if if it was insufficient, then he would say to you, 
go home to your family, get involved in your family business, be the best fill in the blank, the best basket weaver, the best shoemaker, the best fisherman you can be, but you don't have what it takes to follow me, to be like me. And so it was an encouragement in the rejection. So if Matthew's a tax collector, do you think he heard that? He likely heard, go back to the family business. You don't have what it takes to be like me. I mean, to, know, to be a rabbi, to be a teacher. If you did sufficiently, then the, then the teacher, the rabbi, would say to you, follow me. The words follow me are not translatable to mean something else, but what's communicated in that call is, I think you have what it takes to be like me. Now, if I was, when I was young, I had a few people that mentored me, that took me under their wing in various ways, and if they said a compliment to me, I would do everything I could to bend over backwards and, and like, not appeal to them, but get them to, you know, like me even more. If they complimented my work, I would work twice as hard the next day to just make, you know, prove to them that. Like, it would build you up. If, if they had said anything like this to me, I would have been on that, I would have been the most dedicated person they had. Hardest worker, because it draws you to something. So Matthew gets rejected And the other disciples would have heard this too. They get rejected by the rabbis. And then here comes this other rabbi who says, follow me at their older age. What? You think I could be like you? Huh. And so Matthew goes. But he was already rejected. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, you'll do just fine. I think you can be like me. Somebody, one person had rejected them. And another person comes along and believes in them. And so Matthew immediately leaves. And that night he throws a party. Now this could be at Matthew's house and it might be at Jesus' house as we talked. But it says many tax collectors and sinners were there because many people followed him. What's interesting is Matthew invites his people. It's like if you come to Jesus, you're just brand new in the faith. And you want to share this thing that you appreciate with your friends. Are we waiting for people to be cleaned up? What else would we expect, actually? Except that they're going to share it with their own friends. If it's of a benefit to them, wouldn't this? Doesn't that make sense, actually? If we step back and think about it for a moment, there's the movie out, there's the movie um, with uh, Kelsey Grammer and the guy who plays Jesus. 
And it was of, of Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee in, back in the late 70s, and it was about the Jesus people, um, you know, move of God, the revival that happened out in California, and how this guy, Lonnie Frisbee, was highly dynamic yet broken. And he comes in with all of his drug friend people, hippie people, into Chuck Smith's church, Chuck Smith's small, struggling church at the time. And Lonnie was such a charismatic person and a highly gifted evangelist just by God's grace that he starts bringing all these, his people into the church. And it created a lot of tension because it disrupted the apple cart of that church back in the 70s. We have our way but you're all walking in here barefoot or you're all walking in here this way or that way. That's not what we do. It was disruptive, but God was moving. Lonnie just invited his people. Matthew just invited his people to be with Jesus. You know, one of the other guys did it with Nathaniel. No, no, come and see. Can anything good come from Nazareth? What are you kidding me? Nazareth? No, 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 no. Come, just come and see him. If we benefit, we want to bring someone else to have that same benefit because we care about them. But what if they come into our doors or come into our house and, and all of a sudden, instead of being received like Jesus did, what if they come into our house and they're getting judged because they're not clean or not something or they what you know put the label on and so what's interesting is the passage doesn't mention any non-institutional folks being follow following the religious leaders the pharisees and their scribes but those people did follow jesus in this passage the very people that the religious folks despised and rejected, they were actually open to the message of Jesus. How many times today do we think we're looking at society and we think society is going to hell in a handbasket? And we think, and we hear the statistics, people are leaving the church and they're not coming and the next generation's not coming and so on and so on. And, and we think the end is near. But, and we think people don't want to know Jesus. Are we so sure that they don't want to know Jesus? Or do they not, are they not really interested in our message? Sorry, I had that. I actually wanted to say something specific with it. I apologize. Ah, have they rejected Jesus or are they rejecting how we've packaged our message, our methods, and our machinery? How we do things. I believe that there are people that would reject Jesus outright. But I think it's more that have simply rejected the machinery and the whole package that we've placed on it. 
The religious types complained about the impropriety of Jesus eating, and the text would give a footnote that says, 